Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. And this morning, we're going to take a look again in the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for this sermon series, you know that we've been in the book of Revelation. In just a few moments, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, there are four verses in that chapter, and we're going to be reading from beginning to end. Now, I mention this often when I read Scripture. The Bible is written in such a way to where you're to engage your imagination. Whether you're reading in the Gospels or you're reading in the Older Testament, wherever you find yourself reading, the Scriptures are written so that you would engage your imagination and kind of develop a visual picture of what that reality is like. And the book of Revelation, which is known as apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation is decidedly that way. There's incredible verbal painting of visions and things that are happening in the spirit realm. Revelation chapter 4 is exactly like that. But as we get ready to read, I'm going to ask uh, that you can read it on your smartphone or if you have your Bible, the text will be on the screen. But I'm again ask you to please engage your imagination. So here we go, Revelation 4. And we're going to utilize this text towards this sermon on worship. Here's what Revelation tells us. After this, I looked. Now the question has to be, who is I? I is John, the apostle John, who wrote the gospel of John. John is known in the gospel of John as Jesus' best friend. It's not phrased that way, it's phrased this way. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how you would have tweeted BFF. The disciple that Jesus loved, best friends forever. That was John and Jesus. So John now, the scripture tells us, gets an open heaven. Here we go, let's read. It says, after this I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said. By the way, this is the voice of Jesus. And we know this because Jesus had been speaking to John in Revelation chapter 3. It says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Use your imagination. Picture what's next. And the one who sat on it had an appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold, on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center 
around the throne were living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each one of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They lay their crowns down before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created. They and they have their being. So again, picture this. Here's John. And all of a sudden, heaven opens. And John finds himself in the midst of heavenly worship. Now, as you know, whenever I preach or teach from Scripture, I always like to give context. Because context is extremely important. And although the vision or the true experience that John has in heaven is extremely mystical, I believe that in the midst of that mystical, real experience, there are practical things we are going to learn about worship. Because John was literally ushered in to worship in heaven. And there are some practical things we're going to learn. Here's the context. The book of Revelation tells us in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 9, that here's the context for John's worship experience. Here we go. Here's what John says. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The context of this revelation, the context of John being able to see into heaven is that he is on the Isle of Patmos and he is suffering. Now when you read Isle of Patmos, you can kind of flippantly go over that, but here's the context. John is in the last years of his life. We don't really know where John dies. Many believe he dies on this island. He's the last of the disciples. He's the last of the apostles that are alive. And he finds himself on the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was a prison island that the Roman Empire sent people to for forced hard labor in the mines. This is a labor camp. This is where you are sent by the Roman Empire to suffer and to die slowly. So the context tells us that here John is in Revelation chapter 1, and he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he's suffering. He tells us that. He's suffering. And yet here he is, 
And the scripture tells us that heaven is open to him. Let me be very clear that times of suffering are the times where we need to worship the most. I believe this. My life as a follower of Jesus has been for over 40 years. My life has not been without suffering. I've had suffering in my life. And don't let anyone ever convince you of this version of Christianity that teaches if you follow Jesus, you will experience nothing but success. That defies everything in the Newer Testament. Please know, though, God does bless us. God does give us success. But it's very clear that a follower of Jesus is going to go through trials and go through suffering. And here John is. He's in this hard labor camp. He's up in years. He's serving in the mines. He's the last of the 12 apostles. And the scripture tells us that he is experiencing patient endurance in the midst of his suffering through Jesus. He says it clearly. I am a fellow sufferer. I am a brother in Christ. And I am experiencing this patient endurance. What has COVID done to you? For those of you worshiping with us online, what has COVID done to you spiritually? Has it caused you in the midst of your suffering to move away from God? To cease to worship God? There's a clear example here. It is so practical that in the midst of our suffering, it is that time that we need to worship God the most because something happens in worship that happens nowhere else. When we open our hearts to God, my body, soul, and spirit come into alignment before God and I worship him, there's something that happens. There's a transaction that happens and it's found nowhere else. I believe that. And then if you were to read on, we get the rest of the context. It says in verse 10, we just read Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. Now we read Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. And it says this. Here he is on the Isle of Patmos. He's suffering. And it says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now I want you to catch this. John is in a death labor camp. And he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And it's very uh, interesting to note the pronoun is singular. John is alone. He's on a penal colony. He's suffering horribly. He's there in this prison labor camp, and he is all alone. But you know what he's doing? He's keeping the Sabbath. He's keeping the Lord's day. Never underestimate the power of keeping the Lord's day. Again, when I re-looked at the book of Revelation, that verse was so shocking to me. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. No one else was, but he was. 
Now look, if you're a thinking person, I know that some of us sitting here would say, but you know what, Pete? You know, I knew some woman, her name was Lucy or whatever. I knew a guy, his name was Tim. And he was so faithful to church. But he's one of the worst people I've ever met. Well, let me kind of clue you in on a little parable. Sitting in church doesn't make you any more a Christian than standing in your garage makes you a car. Wow, isn't that profound? I had a drug addict that came to faith when I was in college that taught me that. Never forgot it. But here's what I do know. I've never met a believer who has patience and endurance in suffering that did not keep a constant Lord's Day. I've never met one. Sure, you can go every Sunday and never get a thing. But I have never met a follower of Jesus who was maturing and had patient endurance in the midst of suffering that was not keeping a consistent calendared Lord's Day, even when no one else was. Worship. The scripture tells us next that here John is in the midst of horrific suffering and it's on the Lord's day that Jesus speaks to him and gives him the revelation that we read in Revelation chapter four. Revelation chapter four, verse one, I wanna reread it for us. It says, and after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Can you please use your sovereign divine imagination and just picture what that must have been like? Here's John, his body is battered and bruised. He's got a death sentence. He's separated from everyone who's walking with Christ. He is worshiping alone and here he is. And all of a sudden, the door to heaven opens and he is ushered into the middle of a worship experience that absolutely blows his mind. Here's what I believe the Revelation 4.1 is trying to teach us. That when we are faithful to worship, we are here worshiping but while we're here worshiping, we don't have a clue about what's happening in heaven that coincides with what we're doing on earth. I believe Jesus came to John and said, John, you've been faithful. You are worshiping in the midst of your suffering. And now as Jesus, I wanna show you what the extent of worship looks like. You're here, you're alone, you're suffering but look at what's happening in the heavenly realms. And John experiences that. Listen, it's not the first time through Jesus that heaven opens. On his baptism, it's very clear. The gospels tell us that when Jesus was baptized in water, by the way, following the service today, we're gonna have a water baptism outside and I'd love for all of you to stay and to celebrate with us. But when Jesus was baptized in water, the text tells us that when John takes him down and then brings him up out of the water, John the Baptist lifts him up. The scripture literally says, heaven was opened 
The Spirit of God came down like a dove, and God the Father from heaven cheers and says, that's my boy. Heaven had opened before, but never like this. This is the first time that heaven opened and someone was invited in. Heaven usually came down, but this time in the middle of worship, John is invited in. When we read Revelation 4, as we did, your imagination, your divine imagination pictures the throne. God the Father sitting on the throne. There's peals of thunder and lightning. You've got this sea of glass that is clear as crystal. We find ourselves engrossed in that image. And it's powerful. But if you were to look at the next chapter, something shocking happens. And the reality of it is there are no chapter markings in any of the original documents. Greek does not have that, the manuscripts that are used. So chapter 4 just blends right into chapter 5. And in chapter 4, we're introduced to worship of God the Father. But in chapter 5, verse 5, suddenly someone else is brought onto the stage of worship in heaven. Revelation 5.5 says this, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Here's the context for that statement. Here John is, he's ushered into heaven and he's watching this worship. And while he's there, he notices that there are scrolls in the hands of God the Father, and those scrolls must be opened in order to have what's going to happen, happen next. But God looks around, and there's no one there that can open the scrolls. And John the Revelator begins to weep. But all of a sudden, one of those elders turns to John. He says, don't weep. There is one and only one who can open the scrolls. There's one. And what does the text say he is called? The lion of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 5, all of a sudden, Jesus is being brought into this expression of worship. And the elder turns to John and says, the line of the tribe of Judah. Now let's use your divine imagination again. Have any of you ever watched those nature shows, National Geographic with the lions? Raise your hand if you enjoy those. Look around, it's 85% men that raise their hands and the ladies are going, oh, that's so gross. But when you picture a lion ferocious, dominant. Man, when you see that lion walking across the African plains, everything moves out of its way. And suddenly here, Jesus is being referenced as the lion of the tribe of Judah, victorious, dominant. But what's really stunning is what we read in Revelation 5, 6. Jesus is introduced as this mighty lion verbally, but John the Revelator turns to look at the lion, and it says in Revelation 5, 6, then I saw a lamb. Wait, what? 
I thought the voice just said there would be a lion, and I turn, and instead of a lion, what do I see? John sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now picture that. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The picture is a picture of Jesus, but he's not a roaring lion. Instead, Christ in heaven is still captured. It's a freeze frame of Jesus at his most triumphant moment. At his most awesome moment in life, he has frozen in that image in heaven, and he is a lamb that has been sacrificed. That is his greatest moment. It's in his weakness, in his humility, and in his surrender that Jesus was at his greatest moment. You look for a lion, but instead you see a sacrificed lamb. And then we read on in Revelation 5, 13 to 14, it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Catch this. Worship in heaven has now begun to not just focus on God the Father, but now is also focusing on Jesus. To him who sits on the throne, God the Father, And to the Lamb be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and all the elders fell down and they worshiped. What John saw in heaven had to have shocked him. Because as a Jewish man knowing that God the Father is worshiped in heaven is one thing. But now he sees Jesus being worshipped as God is. Can you think about how awesome that transition must have been for John? He now fully understands that Jesus is in the place of worship right where God the Father is. And all of heaven looks not just at God on the throne, but looks at the Lamb who was slain and brings worship and glory and honor. And all of creation is now worshiping him as well. Now how do we practically put feet to our faith? with what we've seen in Revelation chapter four and five. How do we put feet to our faith? First of all, I wanna recall to us Revelation 4.10. It says the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And then the next phrase is so easy to read over. It says, they lay their crowns before the throne. What does that mean? Here's what it means. We know from the scriptures that every person who finds faith in Christ, every person who steps into heaven, every person who on that great day will be invited in, the scripture says you will receive two things. 
you will receive a white robe of righteousness. Not one that you've earned, one that you've been given from Jesus. It's the sign of purity and righteousness. But the Bible says you will also receive a crown, a reward for everything that you've ever done in the name of Jesus for him. Everything that you've done, not out of self-serving or out of selfishness, but you have done out of the most noble motivations that you have done in his name. The scripture says that you will receive a crown and on that crown will be precious stones that are your reward. If you've been faithfully serving because of Jesus, and no one has ever noticed. Don't lose heart. God will reward you on that day. But I want you to notice what the 24 elders do. It says they take their crowns, and what does it say they do? They lay them down, and they do it over and over and over and over. Here's the first practical thing about worship. Whatever your greatest achievement is, whatever has brought you accolades and esteem, whatever you've done that has somehow been viewed by others as being incredible, I want you to be very, very careful. You can receive that. You can receive encouragement from it but it must never become your identity. Always lay down your crown, always. The Bible is full of examples from King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, all the way to the Newer Testament in Acts chapter 12 with King Herod. There were men who God had uniquely gifted and they did incredible things. But after doing incredible things, they looked out and said, look what I have done. And in that moment, God's presence left them. With Herod, it's very fascinating. In Acts chapter 12, it says that Herod gave a speech. He, he was a public orator. And when people heard his voice, they said, oh my goodness, this is like the voice of a God. And it says next, because he did not glorify God, it says he was eaten by worms, and he died. Now, there's a lot of debate what it means to be eaten by worms. But here's what I want to tell you. I don't want to experience that. Whatever it is, we're not real sure, but it's not good. And really what it is, it's God saying, okay, if you want to receive glory and worship for yourself, you can have that, but I'm out. Be very careful every time you have great achievement and there's nothing wrong than hearing applause, receiving praise, having people go, how awesome. But be very careful in worship that you take the time to lay down your crown before Jesus and offer it to him as worship. The next thing, in suffering, worship. John teaches us this. He's received a death sentence. He's in labor camps being beaten and tortured and he's totally alone. And yet he's still worshiping. 
And God honors that. And he experiences what he calls patient endurance. And then last, keep a consistent, scheduled time of worship. Don't ever move away from it. If everyone else in your life walks away, keep a scheduled, consistent Sabbath. Keep a time where you bring yourself before God. And I know it sounds like I'm trying to feather my own nest because I'm the pastor of a church. But I have watched people who over the years have consistently been faithful as John was, even on the Isle of Patmos. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. God touched me. There's something about that consistent time of habitually bringing ourselves together to be before God in worship. And when we do, we lay down our crowns before him, and he receives worship and glory and honor. Stand with me as we worship Jesus together.